Welcome to a new episode of What Really Happened, produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, and Cadence 13. Now, our show is only as good as our listeners. Y'all fact-check me, provide new insight, give your opinions. And to become a contributor, simply go to jenkspod.com slash contributors or call 413-471-2975. Thank you for being a listener and a voice for the podcast. This first minute or two of the story will end up revealing the main character I'm talking about is Dave Chappelle. Like telling you the punchline before the joke, but I think you're still going to like it regardless. There's one video I stumbled upon a year or so ago. It goes like this. There's a town hall happening in a small town in Ohio. This small town has an annual New Year's Eve celebration, which the town is quite proud of. It's low-key, it's family-friendly, and at this point in 2017, now in its 37th year. Unfortunately, this year, something goes wrong. Nobody is killed, nothing here is about to get into a making a murderer-like sort of documentary, but something wrong nonetheless. The local police acted very aggressively towards locals on New Year's. During a time in the night when residents have always been free to enjoy themselves, the police attempted clearing the streets with SUVs or cruisers. This led to a disagreement between police officers and locals, and then tasers being unnecessarily used. That's not my opinion, but a night which is well-documented by a 22-page report the town commissioned in its aftermath. As a local paper reported, the incident prompted hundreds of residents to complain about what they called heavy-handed tactics, attracted national media attention, and led to the resignation of Police Chief David Hale. The report says going forward, police officers on duty on New Year's Eve would be made fully aware of the traditions, nature, and timing of the event. A supervisor would also be on duty the night of, something that didn't happen in this instance. The point of this town hall on this night is to go over the report and decide what to do next. Is there a larger issue of over-policing going on? Local residents go to the podium and talk about what they think should be done. There is no evidence that um, this situation would have been different if we had a young white man who was drunk and acting goofy. There may have been exactly the same kind of behavior. But I think we need an awareness that there's a narrative uh, in the nation, in the state, and in Greene County that uh, young black men are sometimes stopped on fairly minor uh Incidents. Says another concerned citizen. I'm hoping that in the process um, ahead, if you decide to hire um, whoever it is you're going to hire for a chief, the crisis intervention training. Be part of the discussion. Every officer in the Yellow Springs Police Department should have had a 40-hour crisis intervention training. And then one of the last people to take the mic says... So I would, I would beseech the council to look deeply and to look hard because, I mean, we got, I mean, this is a golden opportunity. Literally, you could kill the game. So I'm just begging you to find a candidate that matches the culture of this town, which is, which is incredibly unique, which is renowned for being incredibly unique. That's all I want to say. Thank you, Dave. He walks away, the last person online to speak. A seemingly sharp-witted man sitting nearby barely stands to whisper into the mic. What's your name? (laughs) But what actually makes the man's last second comment kind of funny is that many of these residents already knew this was Dave, 
not because he's likely the most famous comedian on the planet, but instead because he is one of them, a local. My idea was to look into what really happened when Dave Chappelle, at the height of his popularity as arguably the best comedian in the world, with a paycheck of $50 million en route, decided to quit and go to South Africa. Dave hardly resurfaced for nearly a decade. Rumors were that he had drug problems, went crazy, and is on a variety of what I could warn are bogus lists, such as the top celebrity breakdowns and Hollywood's biggest quitters. Now he lives in his local community in Ohio. Yes, he's returned with Netflix specials and other movies and appearances, but unlike most in his business, he's not in L.A., he's not in New York. He's at home, a 7 p.m. Monday Village Council meeting in the Bryan Center Gym in Yellow Springs, Ohio, for a discussion about the local policing and what happened on New Year's Eve. In a pretty well-known interview Dave gave with Oprah nearly a year after he left the show, there's a small part I picked up on when watching the video for a second time. Now, really, what was going on? Man, where do you start? Dave, better than anyone, knows storytelling. And the issue with his story is, after the headline, it's not an easy story to break down. It's not really complicated, per se, but you can't point to one thing. For even a basic understanding, I think you have to obviously know Dave's work, his interviews, every word he's ever said, but also moving parts. Comedy Central and Viacom, Rick James, A Night in Sacramento, DVD sales shifting in the market, Fox's TV show Buddies, elements of sensitivity, hubris, and most importantly, intention. It's not story conducive. It's more like a list. And lists aren't always easy to answer. Which is why you hear Dave finally say to Oprah, Damn this story. He's not kidding. Damn. This story. Today is the 13th year, four-month, and third-day anniversary of the day since Dave Chappelle quit the biggest comedy show in the planet. To celebrate, I ask, what really happened? There's a big part of me, at this point in my story, kind of skeptical of what I'm doing. This sort of celebrity, what really happened type of story. Oftentimes, we like to look back at certain events when a particular anniversary is coming up. Some have become a bit arbitrary. Last year was the 20th anniversary of Princess Diana's death, which is important, but every network had a special claiming to have groundbreaking interviews and information that weren't really groundbreaking in any way. It became laughable and misleading. So I'm at least happy this isn't an anniversary of anything Dave Chappelle related. Last year, we did an episode on when Britney Spears was in the press years ago while experiencing mental health issues. During my research, I noticed while everyone was making fun of Britney, Dave Chappelle always seemed to defend her. Somehow, I ended up watching a video of him on YouTube. I went on YouTube to see how Dave dealt with the paparazzi. Around 2009, when leaving the Ivy, a Los Angeles hotspot restaurant, Dave lights a cigarette when the paparazzi suddenly appear and surround him. He gives that look like he just ran into an ex on the sidewalk and has to pretend to be nice, but really wishes he had waited. It seems like to allow others at the restaurant to eat in peace, Dave walks away from the restaurant. Rather than say something like, leave me alone, he jabs, so who are you guys hoping to really see here? Dave isn't dumb. He knows the Ivy is a place to be seen, but he does appear surprised by all of the commotion. This is confirmed when he asks if word came in that a person like Jessica Alba was a block away, would the photographers all go run off? 
they all respond with, yeah, sorry, Dave, we'd have to go. But for now, it's just Chappelle. And one of the first questions asked to Dave is, what advice would you give Britney Spears? It's an easy layup for Dave to say something most of us, probably including me, would find funny. But Dave says without hesitation, which is hard to hear with all the photos clicking, something like, come on, man, why do you have to bust the girl like that? He leans back with genuine empathy. Quickly, another paparazzi yells, Dave, what are you doing for the holidays? And Dave immediately responds with, well, I guess I won't need Christmas pictures, will I? Everyone laughs. He then saves a photographer from running into a tree, as most of them are walking backwards to capture Dave walking forward. Dave then asks the dozen or so photographers if anyone has a business card. I'm not totally sure why, but he seems sincere and gets one. He then asks if they could, at the very least, walk down a side street because it's embarrassing for all this commotion to be going on down a main road. All of the above happens in the one minute since Dave left the restaurant for that cigarette. One minute, and Dave has saved a paparazzi from crashing and breaking an expensive camera, gotten a business card, cracked a few jokes, stood up for Spears, and casually changed the location of where this madness will ensue. Only a minute later, Dave now has a dozen or so of the paparazzi involved in a Q&A, but he's flipped the traditional script. He's asking them questions. At least one of the paparazzi has even put his camera down and is now in a real conversation with Dave. Chappelle asks about their methodology salaries, perceptions of their own job, why people are searching crude Britney Spears pictures while America is at war, and then at one point, despite being surrounded by cameras, Dave somehow notices a lone protester down the street holding up a sign that is in support of the Writers Guild. Hey, good for you, man, Dave says. The cameras get a few shots of the lone man and then look back at Dave. He continues asking questions. This vignette, if you will, explains Dave. In my solely subjective opinion, albeit based on months of research, he goes by his own rules, Dave's rules of intentions. In April of 2005, Dave Chappelle, at 31 years old, was filming the third season of his Comedy Central hit show, Chappelle Show, when he walked off set. Without telling anyone but his brother, he flew to South Africa on April 28th, with no return flight booked. Chappelle was at his peak professionally. Only months prior, he had signed a massive contract for two more seasons of his hit show. The deal was likely worth more than $50 million, a staggering amount, particularly in 2005, and for cable. Chappelle's show had just set records for DVD sales. And Dave was easily one of the most famous comedians in the world and likely, at this moment in time, the hottest. And now he's in South Africa while in production of season three? On May 4th, 2005, Comedy Central announced that production had been suspended until further notice. Suffice to say, quote-unquote reporting was rampant about what Chappelle was doing in South Africa and hardly ever based on facts. Speculation includes reports that Dave had left for South Africa because he went crazy, a meltdown, a breakdown. Entertainment Weekly claimed in South Africa Dave was in a mental institution. The New York Times ran a story on May 6th with the headline, Why is Chappelle's show at a halt? Not because of drugs, an aide says. Which makes many, or at least me, think, oh, I didn't know drugs were in the picture. Clearly they are, otherwise an aide wouldn't be disputing that claim in a New York Times headline. And so now we're wondering, well, is he in rehab? After two weeks in South Africa, Dave goes on what I call the Proof of Sanity tour. As if promoting a film, Dave is promoting or trying to prove his sanity. The first stop on the Proof of Sanity tour is Time magazine. It's May 2005. 
Dave has taken note of the wild claims about what he's doing in South Africa. So a Time Magazine reporter is asked to come and interview him to prove he's fine. To report back to the world, Dave Chappelle isn't in a mental institution or, as other reports have claimed, on drugs. So Time Johannesburg Bureau Chief Simon Robinson goes to meet with Dave at Ushaka Marine World, a water park on the beach in the South African port of Durban. The Time Magazine article doesn't make a thing of this, but it's amazing to me that this is where they meet. The writer doesn't explain why, but Dave has decided to tell the world all is well at a water park. South Africa's equivalent of SeaWorld. There's something brilliant about a grown person explaining their sanity to an international bureau chief in a location that has special exhibits like the Meet Freddy the Friendly Iguana. But again, none of this is mentioned. Instead, it is just Dave talking on a beach. And the writer, doing his job, is clearly paying attention to everything Dave does. Almost as if a psychiatrist observing Dave, the writer notes, he's lucid and thoughtful and a couple of times asks me to give him some time to think about answers. He's also quite fastidious about keeping his new sneakers clean, and stops at least twice to wipe smudges off their toes. The writer says, The first thing Chappelle wants is to dispel rumors, that he's got a drug problem, that he's checked into a mental institution in South Africa. He says he is staying with a friend. And so that's the first thing to cross out, this idea that Dave was in a mental institution. Something still talked about, and there's just no facts to back it up, as a possibility to explain why he went to South Africa. It shouldn't matter really if he was. There are some great mental institutions around the world. Somebody needs to get help. Although, as Dave would later joke, I'm just, I gotta get people thinking, all right, who goes from America to Africa for medical attention? <laughs> as one can imagine, the quote-unquote reporting on Dave leaving the show and traveling to South Africa was hardly ever based on facts. It didn't really matter whether he was in a mental institution or not. This story would be a catchy headline, turning it from a Time Magazine article to a Time Magazine cover story. Who wants a story about Dave just going to Africa to chill? That is way less exciting. But Chappelle also says that he shares the blame for what he still thinks will be just a stalled third season. I'm admittedly a human being, he says. I'm a difficult kind of dude. I have trust issues, things like that. I saw some stuff in myself that I just didn't dig. During this Time Magazine interview, the writer does pick up on something telling. The crux of his crisis, that's Dave's, seems to boil down to his almost obsessive need to quote-unquote check my intentions. He uses the phrase a few times during the interview and explains that it means really making sure that he's doing what he's doing for the right reasons. This is where I was reminded that Dave is Muslim. For a guy that talks a lot about his personal life and his skits, his stand-up, his comedy, I had forgotten about this. We've never really talked about religion on this podcast, and that sort of piqued my interest. I didn't know about the importance of intention in Islam. As it turns out, Dave became Muslim in 1998 and said, quote, I don't normally talk about my religion publicly because I don't want people to associate me and my flaws with this beautiful thing. And I believe it is beautiful if you learn it the right way. The proof of sanity, first stop, is a success. Dave remained in South Africa in all for only two weeks. The next step on the Dave Chappelle sanity tour would be his first TV interview on Oprah. And she came prepared. People were saying, though, that you were on drugs, you lost your mind, 
you went into a mental institution. What is true? What is not? Technology is obviously in a very different place these days. We got camera phones, satellite mapping, VR, and wait for it here, some damn near awesome toothbrushes. I'm serious. Until recently, I was one of many out there still using that old school stick brushing away like we did 100 years ago. And so I introduce you to Quip, an electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers designed to make brushing your teeth more simple. Thank God. No reason to complicate this. Quip has sensitive sonic vibrations, gentle enough on your sensitive gums. I don't know if you know this, but my gums actually are incredibly sensitive, as is my heart. Why does this matter? People brush too hard, and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. A built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides helping guide a full and even clean. It's amazing. Why do they do this? Up to 90% of us don't brush for a full two minutes, that's for sure, or don't clean evenly. I love Quip because, to put it simply, it's better than any toothbrush I've used before. Makes me feel good, makes me feel fresh in the morning, ready to go. That's why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com, dot com slash WRH right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash W-R-H. There are two interviews Dave gave after South Africa that have stuck with me and many others who are Chappelle fans. These two interviews were timed for Dave to promote an indie film he made. If the Time Magazine article was to show he wasn't in rehab in South Africa, these two interviews will ground Dave again as a person and promote this movie. The first of these two interviews on the Dave Chappelle tour was Oprah. It was about 10 months since Chappelle returned from Africa, and the show was soon after over. If you watch Oprah interviewing Dave Chappelle, you're reminded why Oprah is Oprah. She will ask a question we're dying to know, will ask with sincerity oozing out of her every word, but also ask the question in a way like you ask your buddy, not some famous person. But what you're really reminded of, that is Oprah doesn't complicate her questions. They are, if anything at all, very clear, whether it's that Lance Armstrong interview from a few years ago or this one with Dave Chappelle. Everybody wants to know, why'd you walk away from $50 million? No, really, what was going on? I still haven't gotten to why you just disappeared. There are four big takeaways I noted from this interview. First, and this is vital, is Dave describing one of the moments that led him to take off to South Africa. It was during a sketch that was a commentary on race. He heard a crew member laugh, but the laughter seemed to stem from racism, opposed to stemming from Chappelle's take on racism. Like, there's this one sketch we did that was about the, this pixie that would appear whenever racist things happen. Whenever someone make you feel like they calling you that N-word, uh-huh. but don't say it. And it was, it was funny. And it, the premise of the sketch was that every race had this, like, pixie, this, like, racial complex. And, uh, but, the, but the pixie was in blackface. Now... Blackface is a very difficult image. But the reason I had chosen blackface at the time was because this was going to be the visual personification 
of the N word. It was right. it the it was a it was a good spirit or intention behind it. But what I didn't consider is how many people watch a show and how the way people use television is subjective. So then when I'm on the set and we're finally taping the sketch, somebody on the set that was white laughed in such a way. I know the difference of people laughing with me and people laughing at me. And it was the first time I'd ever gotten a laugh that I was uncomfortable with. Hmm. Not just uncomfortable, but like, should I fire this person? <laughs> My second takeaway, Dave's history with Comedy Central. At times, it seems Dave has suggested the network was in his way. But it doesn't seem like this was the case when season three started. And Dave has seemed to back off these remarks. Comedy Central wasn't led by John Carter-like execs. During the negotiation of Dave's deal, the president of the network was Doug Herzog, who in my research seems like he knows what he's doing. At MTV, he launched the famous movie awards and brought in a slew of reality shows. Among his many accomplishments at Comedy Central, Doug was part of a small group that greenlit South Park and brought in Jon Stewart to host The Daily Show. All indications are that Doug seems too smart of a guy to get in Chappelle's way. When Herzog heard that Chappelle had apparently said Comedy Central was getting in his way, Herzog emphatically spoke up. That made me angry. We paid him $50 million and said, do whatever you want. Takeaway three. Unlike season two, season three has massive expectations. Season one was critically acclaimed, but it wasn't until season two that Chappelle's show became a massive hit. This is why season three was different. It had the dangerous component of big-time expectations. Pressure was added not just because of season two, but because Comedy Central embraced those expectations in a great way. They gave their star a big-time deal and creative freedom. But this also, in the most human way possible, created stress for Dave. People were saying, though, that you were on drugs, you lost your mind, you went into a mental institution. What is true, what is not? Not on drugs. Not on drugs. Nah, not for years. Okay. Uh, I'm not on drugs. And you weren't on drugs at the time? No, no, No. not at all, not at all. I'm telling you, I was incredibly stressed out. You, you know, struggled to get it. Sacrificed. Sacrificed, rejected many times told that things wouldn't work, wouldn't work, wouldn't work, and then all of a sudden, you're the genius, and we're going to give you $50 million. And that was too much for you to handle? No. That's the thing that I always read that that makes me mad. No. It was the fame. Couldn't stand the fame. Yeah. I love being famous. Yeah. (laughs) It's phenomenal. When I came out here and everybody was like, hooray, I was like, ow, back on TV. Okay, so that's clear. It's not the fame. It's what? In Africa, there's a small community of people that don't know anything about the work I do, and they just treat me like I'm a regular dude. So I knew that in Africa I'd have a place to sleep and that I wouldn't have to feel strange. And You know, when they would call me crackhead and all these things in the country where I'm from, in Africa, they didn't know anything. They was feeding me and taking care of me take me to the mall and just regular stuff. And it just made me feel good. It just reminded me that I was a person, you know. Takeaway four, Dave had a history of quitting, which sounds negative, but 
isn't really when put in context. Dave had quit comedy in the past. In fact, he did so in high school, when he returned home from a set and declared he was pulling a Bobby Fischer. When Dave had a show called Buddies on Fox, he walked away after Fox told him they needed to replace a black character with a white character to help with quote-unquote universal appeal. Dave found this to be a last-second maneuver that was out of line after a series of other changes had been made to the show. What's interesting about Dave's story as it pertains to fame is that, yeah, he was like 99% of people in Hollywood striking out constantly. But he was also getting so close. He was in that 98.9th percentile zone. If he wasn't on the field, he was right there on the sidelines. Before Chappelle's show hit the air, Dave was in 11 pilots. 11 different TV shows that all fell through. He had auditioned for SNL and didn't get it. Chappelle, whether walking away or being told to walk away, found the exit signs to be comfortable terrain. Finally, during the interview with Oprah, Dave says, after nearly a year since leaving the show, he is open to returning. Being the storyteller he is, Dave tells Oprah he'll wait until the end of the interview for maximum impact. And when he does give his offer, he finds the camera to speak with the television audience at home. This is what I'm envisioning. Yeah. All right, so can I, which camera can I rebut them? Okay, go, go right there. there. All right, so here we go. This is what we'll do. I want to restructure the deal. You keep the, uh, no, don't keep nothing. Um, we're going we're gonna to work. We're going to get the proper foundations. We're going to f- figure it out. Half of the DVD revenue, if we can make a deal where I have the control that, that I like, and half the DVD revenue goes back to the people mm-hmm. that we see fit. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be, I think I'd be more than willing to finish what the, what we started. Right. Uh, and the other thing I want to say is this, like, you know, I get a little heated when I talk about the past, but I, don't, I, I wanted to be clear. I'm not mad at anybody. Not anymore. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whoever, whoever was working on the show that wants to come back, hey, as far as I'm concerned, you're more than welcome. Even that white guy who was laughing a little too much? Well, not everybody. Oprah. (laughs) Thank goodness Oprah is here. (laughs) Dave Chappelle's Proof of Sanity Tour's second stop, a success. Now, he hasn't just shown he's sane, but he wants that TV show back. Comedy Central and Dave didn't come to an agreement after all. And to Dave's dismay, Comedy Central aired what are known as Season 3's Lost Episodes. These are skits Dave had filmed before leaving. Since Dave's comedy is so personal, the skits say a lot about where he was in life. You witness how the $50 million deal changed his life, or at least the perception of his life. These lost skits have a lot to do with his trust issues and people looking at him only for his money. Ultimately, the Oprah interview and my subsequent research around the interview shows that Dave was one feeling the stress of the new contract and what came with it. Two, wasn't afraid of quitting. Three, couldn't really blame Comedy Central. And four, there was a skit in which a crew member laughs, laughing at Dave and not with him, which seems to be a tipping point. The next step on the Dave Chappelle Proof of Sanity tour, inside the actor's studio. Maybe if Time Magazine wasn't the perfect place to explain Dave was sane, and maybe if Oprah was too perfect of a place to explain Dave was sane, perhaps Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton could do the trick. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I now introduce you to FrameBridge. They make it super easy and affordable to frame your favorite things, from art prints and posters to the travel photos sitting on your phone or whatever's on your phone. Here's how it works. Just go to framebridge.com and upload your photo, or they'll send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. Preview your item online in any frame style. Choose your favorite or get free recommendations from their talented designers. Trust me, they are incredibly talented. The expert team at FrameBridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. Instead of the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, which I've also made the mistake of doing, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, this is big, plus my listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use my code WRH. Again, that's my code WRH. I actually uh, recently got something framed. I made a movie poster. I made a movie a few years ago titled Dream Killer, which I just never got around to framing. And I thought, you know what? Jenks, man, hook yourself up. And so whether you were, you know, hook yourself up or maybe get something for someone else, God forbid, uh, maybe you want to do something to update the home for the holidays, get started by using FrameBridge. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code WRH and you'll save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code WRH, framebridge.com, promo code WRH. James Lipton in his early 80s is balding with large round glasses and a serious tone. He's been parodied often by Will Ferrell on SNL. Lipton is most known for his Inside the Actors studio, which airs on Bravo, as he conducts serious interviews with established actors in front of a prestigious class of acting students in graduate school. The interview is on a small stage, not too far off from your classic stand-up set. The students watch on in all for over 90 minutes. I had no idea, but James Lipton's show plays in 25 countries around the world, reaching about 90 million homes. He's known for asking simple questions via index cards, and this simplicity tricked me for, I guess as it turns out, years. Dave Chappelle, what's your favorite curse word? What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Who was the inspiration for I Want to Piss on You? (laughs) Until I watched the Dave Chappelle interview, I didn't realize the simplicity is only made possible by the time and extensive research Lipton has done on all of his guests. After interviewing Martin Sheen for the series, Sheen finally stopped at one point, looked at Lipton and said, how do you know all of this? This is extraordinary. Only nine days after Oprah's interview, Inside the Actors Studio aired an interview with Dave from two months prior. To me, it seems like Oprah somehow had the exclusive on a Dave return interview, and Dave probably wanted this to get his message out to the masses, but this Inside the Actors Studio interview has a lot of information. After watching Dave with Lipton a couple of times, I noticed Dave seemed to really like the host. He admired Lipton's show. Dave said he had always wanted to be on it, but never thought somebody who does his type of comedy would be invited to a class in which acting is talked about so seriously. Lipton also has a great deal of admiration for Dave. Towards the end of the interview, he says in passing that there hasn't been a more honest conversation with a guest in years. Dave is clearly honored by the remark. 
there is nothing he seems more intent on than being sincere. And this legendary host has acknowledged that Dave isn't just sincere, but more so than nearly any other previous guest. I studied up on James Lipton, who, as it turns out, is a fascinating guy, where he comes from, to the roles he's had in all sorts of theater productions, to his writing and acting for a variety of soap operas. The biggest little note I pulled out of this research was a book Lipton wrote in 1993 called An Explanation of Larks. The book is about collective nouns, their history, their wonders, their mysteries, and their roots. It is, by any measure, a wondrous read if you are a fairly serious nerd entranced with the English language. This is where Dave and Lipton seem to get along most, even though they never talk about it. An interest in words and language. I don't know, there's something about this interview, the research Lipton so clearly put into the entirety of Dave's career and the sincerity with which Dave speaks that makes it feel different. It's an interview in which you don't just see the principles that Dave Chappelle lives by, but also the tenets he lives by. Lipton and Dave talk about the opening sketch of the series, one of the show's most famous, in which Dave plays a blind racist. This blind racist is friends with other fellow racists. As it turns out, this blind racist is black, and he has yet to find out. By any measure, opening the series with Bigsby was a gamble. Yeah, let me tell you, putting something like that out there is scary, man. That show is like, listen, if you don't like that, you're not going to like the show. It was a good test, right? Not a test as much as a... Dave, a guy who cares about what words he uses made sure to correct Lipton. Not a test as much as a manifesto or a mission statement. Forget this just being a gamble. It's bigger than that. It's a mission statement. It's the show's manifesto. Dave tripled down. This would be a show about race. For those more casual observers of Chappelle, this is important. Seinfeld was a show about nothing. Friends was a show about friends. Sopranos was a show about family. Dave Chappelle's show was a show about race. The second item that came up that took me by surprise was what Dave and the co-creator of the show, Neil Brennan, were first talking about when discussing this concept of a show for Comedy Central. We wanted to do something that was real personal. It was just, per- I don't know, it was just the word personal kept coming up. That's one thing to remember about Chappelle's show. Dave, from the beginning, made sure it was personal. If you remember anything about Dave Chappelle so far... Let it be this. He created a very personal show about race. And among his most personal character values in life is maintaining righteous intentions. If you can remember that, if one can understand and empathize with that, that's step one. Step two is understanding what was going on in Dave's life at the time. First, in Sacramento in 2004, Dave was doing stand-up when he encountered something that had been happening elsewhere. Audience members were yelling fan-favorite lines from the show. It happened when David walked down the street with the famous I'm Rick James, bitch, call-outs. But now Dave was hearing people yell lines while he was performing live on stage. And that is one place you don't fuck with Chappelle. He put down the mic and walked off. When he returned to the stage, he said, this is the most important thing I do. And because I'm on TV, you make it hard for me to do it. This show is ruining my life. In other words, the intention was to tell stories, and these stories were being interrupted. It seems like Dave was asking himself, was the TV show worth it? 
It seems like it'd be worth it to him, so long as each episode's intentions were also the outcome, a funny and thoughtful understanding about race. And this is why that crew member laughing the wrong way at Dave's joke was such a problem. The problem with his intentions not being reached wasn't necessarily a problem for others around him. It wasn't necessarily a problem for those that worked for him or friends of his. It certainly wasn't a problem for his pocketbooks. But this is a guy who reminds you, Ain't really no going back. You can't, you can't get unfamous. You can get infamous. Right. But you can't get unfamous. Right. So I got scared. I'm not going to lie, y'all. I was scared to death. When I'm on stage, I get real happy up there. Like, maybe that's the only time in my adult life that I feel like myself. You're standing up there, you know what I mean? Like a gladiator. And them lights is on you, and you look down, and everyone's looking up at you like... <laughs> and it's just all these smiles around you, and, and they get dressed, and they put perfume on and stuff, and they're going to see your show. That feels good, man. These people... You know, they love you. Even if it's for a minute, they really do. They, they love you, man. You know, it's like a, it's a love fest. Good feeling. Yeah, it's the best feeling, man. I love standing. After having done TV shows for networks and movies for cable channels, one of the biggest difference between podcasting and other mediums is the ridiculous, absurd, awesome amount of freedom. No network notes, just Chris sitting here telling me how to say things, which sometimes, you know, these notes are helpful, don't get me wrong, but there's no age demo we're trying to hit. We're just doing the best work we can. Freedom. Freedom. Well, guess where I'm going with this? You can also find freedom at stamps.com. For those who follow me on social media, I'll sometimes send out a free copy of my New York Times not best-selling book or other old-school projects I have on DVD using stamps.com. It makes it so easy, so simple, it saves hours. With Stamps.com, you can access all of the services of the post office right from your desk. Buy and print real U.S. postage for any letter or any package. All available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just click, print, mail, and you're done. Stamps.com will even send you a digital scale. You can weigh your letters and packages and print the exact amount of postage every time. Right now, use WRH, as in what really happened, for this special offer. It's a four-week trial and includes postage and a digital scale. Go to stamps.com, and before doing anything else on the page, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in WRH. That's stamps.com. Enter WRH. It just feels like Chappelle prefers the most pure way to tell a story up on stage, just him and the audience. Similar to how you can see the mindset of an all-star player transform into a Hall of Famer, the point at which they realize the only thing stopping them is themselves. The only thing that was going to stop Dave from winning would be himself. That is why he got rid of the TV show while he still could, before the TV show would get rid of him. I've read online a common comparison that goes something along the lines of Dave Chappelle is the Jordan or the LeBron of comedy, the Jay-Z of comedy, the best of the best. But he really isn't like those guys. While he does have a production company, I get the sense that Dave Chappelle's intention is to stick to being an artist. While Jay-Z isn't just a businessman, but a business, 
man, you get the feeling Dave is an artist and he likes it if business follows. But that isn't the goal. I'm going to find a way to I'm going to find a way to be myself, man. I got to I got to, you know, I'm an artist, man. I you know, I don't I don't need a sneaker deal. I, I mean, I'd like one if they but <laughs> The outcome to all of this from the perspective of this outsider looking in is really interesting. After Dave left Comedy Central, he became this mythical figure. He was in some movies here and there, certainly did stand up, but only until very recently actually returned in a big way by premiering a series of stand-up specials in a lucrative deal with Netflix. Some say Chappelle's show Untimely End is tragic. All of those seasons left to the imagination. All of those years Dave wasn't on a national or international stage providing not just laughs but insight. Between the time Dave left for South Africa and his stand-up premiere on Netflix, Barack Obama ran for office. One, then won a second term, only for the man who claimed Obama wasn't an American citizen, Donald Trump, to become the next president. Even if you forget the skits and conversation Dave Chappelle would have generated during this period of time, it also shows just how long he was gone for. Gone, right until it seemed like the country couldn't take his absence anymore. It's hard to believe, but Dave's first time hosting SNL was on November 12th, 2016. The first SNL after Donald Trump had been elected. After watching it again, I was reminded why his opening monologue, in particular, is an SNL instant classic. Dave was back. But that's where I'm realizing I'm wrong. That Dave was gone and that we missed so many great skits because Dave wasn't gone. Far from it. He was incredibly aware of his intentions in the moment. Because seasons one and two were brilliant, who says it would continue on to season three or season four and so on? Imagine if so many of our favorite shows had the audacity to end on a high note before any compromises were made. The outcome to all of this from my research is something that doesn't make Dave out to be this mythical figure. Instead, I find something far more tangibly exciting. Chappelle has helped change how we use certain words when talking about mental health. The worst thing to call somebody is crazy, is dismissive. I don't understand this person, so they're crazy. That's bullshit. These people are not crazy. They're strong people. Maybe the environment is a little sick. And to keep himself grounded, he hasn't strayed from his hometown. This is a guy who practices what he preaches. In 1995, Dave was watching over his sick father when his representatives out of Los Angeles asked him to come to L.A. for a meeting with Fox. Dave didn't want to go at first, ended up going, the meeting went awry, and Dave says that ever since then, this was in 1995, he has lived in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And that's what brings Dave to that town hall. To be nothing more, nothing less, than a citizen of a small town. Although Dave has very recently taken more to a national political stage, he knows that in a world of famous people supporting politicians on a national scale, this is an opportunity to show everybody that local politics reigns supreme. We can make our corner of the world outstanding. Given the national narrative and given what the culture of our town is like, that the council has a tremendous opportunity to be like a leader in progressive law enforcement. The town adjusted to what happened on New Year's Eve. 
and changed how they were doing things. A police chief came in who has developed a close relationship with citizens and local businesses. The local papers I've read the last few months suggest that overall this change has been a success. It seems because of the leaders who run the local government in this area and an engaged group of citizens, Dave being one of many, this town in Ohio is now better prepared than ever before for another successful New Year's Eve celebration. That's why in the end, I'm really excited about this episode. Dave leaving after season two makes perfect sense. He had to check his intentions. What else did we think would really happen? Next week on What Really Happened, musicians Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain, and Amy Winehouse all died at 27 years old. It has become known as the 27 Club. Some say this is nothing more than a media-manufactured term. Tragedy randomly struck a group of people all at the same age. That's what I originally thought. But extensive studies going back over 100 years show something else. That's next week on What Really Happened. Don't forget, go to jenkspod.com to give me feedback or jenkspod.com slash contributors to become a part of the team. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Andrew Jenks.